So hi, everybody. Welcome back to my podcast. I'm in San Francisco right now, and I've been eating my way around the city. I lived here for a number of years, and I have friends and family, and I'm pretty full. But today I have an appetite for food writing, and I'm excited to have a friend of mine. I was going to say an old friend, but she's a friend who I've had for a while. And her name is Diane Jacob, and she's the author of Will Write for Food. And if you want to read show notes about this, links and so forth, you can go to my newsletter at davidlebovitz.substack.com, or you can also visit me on my website at davidlebovitz.com for recipes, stories, and more. But everything is updated on the newsletter page and my Substack page. And Diane also has a Substack newsletter, and she's at Diane Jacob, and that's D-I-A-N-N-E-J-A-C-O-B.substack.com. Welcome, Diane. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, well, you showed up with sandwiches and bread and pastries, so you're always welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> Since I'm traveling, it's nice to have some fresh, delicious food to eat, although you live in Oakland, California, which has great food as well. Very fortunate. The food scene in San Francisco continues to thrive, which is amazing. Yeah, there's uh, so many kinds of food now that you never would have thought about before that you don't know anything about and you have to go out and explore everything. In a nutshell, why do you think California has become this great food scene? Mm. Remember Sunset? We had Sunset Magazine many years yeah. ago. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about all kinds of food. Well, it's, but it's a great, it was a great magazine because it really featured like agriculture and so forth, not just gardening. Yeah. Gardening. Growing your own food. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's still around. It's still, it, it's a, I guess, kind of a shadow of its former self, like many other men, mm -hmm. food magazines. But why? I guess we have a really vibrant community here that's pretty diverse and. So, you know, like I, I just convinced my girlfriend that we should drive to Newark on Sunday to have a Taiwanese breakfast because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's something on the menu there that I'm very excited about. And uh, so, yeah, you can just, you can find all kinds of things here. Well, the proximity to Asia and Mexico have also really contributed to the wonderful food scene here. So it's a great place and I'm thrilled to be back. So Diane was an editor and a journalist and I guess you could probably still wear the, those hats, but you're primarily a food writing coach. Yes. And you also have a newsletter and you write about food writing and so forth. But when I was talking to a friend the other day, I said, oh, my friend Diane Jacob is coming by. She's a food writing coach. He sort of stopped and he said, what's that? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, it's a very narrow field. There aren't a lot of us. <laughs> well, basically, it's about writing. And the mm -hmm. subject is food. So, you know, it's really a lot of food writing is outside of writing recipes. Food writing is just about being a good writer. Mm -hmm. And the subject is food. So all the things that apply to being an excellent writer and editor when you're editing yourself mm -hmm. apply to food writing. But then recipe writing is kind of, is this, you know, its own it's, thing it's because own thing, it's yeah. very technical there's a lot of arguments about how it should be done. Yeah. And I love getting into the mix about all of that. And it's it's a skill that you really have to learn and are still learning after mm. right? You're still yeah. you're, you're still perfecting your recipe oh, yeah. writing skills. And uh, yeah. you know, after so many books and so many recipes on your blog, it's it's something well, you have to keep yeah. going with. I got to update. My first two books came out like in 1999 and 2001, I believe. And then about maybe 15 years ago, my publisher said, let's re-release the books or the books as one single volume ready for dessert. And I got to redo the recipes and take another look at them. And I'm like, oh, well, now I make this this way. It's easier. Oh, this is no longer available or this is, and I could add things. Nice. But when people want to write a book, because when I started writing cookbooks, there was no such thing as a blog. Somehow editors found out about you, bought your book proposal, and then published your book if you were fortunate. Nowadays, of course, things have changed with blogs. So people come to you and they say, Diane, I want to write a book. Oh, all the time. And you, they hire you sometimes, and sometimes maybe not. It might not be a good fit. 
But tell me the kinds of people that come to you with book ideas and which ones you you like and what you look for or what you discourage <laughs> and well, what you discourage. What I discourage. Well, there's just, there's so many things that go into I want to write a book. Mm-hmm. Like, do you really understand what that means? Because... Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> it means that the next, like... Three, four years of your life are going to be consumed by figuring out what the book is about, writing your proposal, getting an agent, getting a book deal, Mm -hmm. writing the book, going through all the edits and the shoots and the fine-tuning and the design and then promoting the book. So it's a huge statement to say, Mm -hmm. I want to write a book. And I'm not sure everybody understands what they're getting into. Um, So that's one thing. And then the other thing is, are you a recognized expert in your field? And has anyone ever heard of you? Have you ever been published on the subject of your book? I mean, you want to write a book about the history of anchovies. Somebody just hired me. Okay, uh, the history of anchovies. Look at his proposal for that. And he was a terrific, terrific writer. Had a background as a filmmaker, documentary guy, but he had never been published on the subject of anchovies or well, any his other defense, writing. There aren't a lot of articles about anchovies. Well, I love anchovies. Me too. Yeah, love them. And so I thought that was a weakness. But he was such a good writer that he actually mm-hmm. just emailed me today to say that he got a book deal. Oh, that's so. great. Well, there are there are great books that were written years ago, like Oranges by John McPhee. And Love that book. Yeah, you'd think, who cares about a book about oranges, huh? And you read it, and it's yeah, you just he's you a bro- brilliant writer. Yeah, brilliant, one of the best. And he wrote a story for the New Yorker many years ago. He went out with Yule Gibbons in the woods for a week. And Yule Gibbons, <laughs> for people that don't know, he was one of these people that foraged through the woods and would pick wild lettuce, and he did commercials for Grape Nut Cereal. I think that's how people got to know him. But the story was so... They made like a salad every day. They made like a birthday dinner, I think, like a cake out of wild things. Wow. I wonder if it was even edible. It was, yeah. Well, everything was edible. <laughs> okay. It was, you know, but he wrote about, you know, the, you I got to find that article. Yeah. It's pretty cool. But those kind of people, you like now you, they might have a blog. Yes. But in those days, it's like, well, who's the gatekeeper and yes. who decides who gets published. I do have a lot of bloggers as clients because mm-hmm. they've, you know, they've developed their recipe writing skills, they've developed their audience. They have developed their social media following. And so they're a very low risk for a publisher because they've already established themselves. Well, I love that you published or you helped um, Reem Cassis get her first book deal. And when her book came out, it was on Palestinian cooking. And, you know, at the time, Palestinian cooking was still something people didn't really talk about to be polite. It was something that was like, oh, we're not going to talk about this. And then she came out with this book that was pretty apolitical. Yes. um, Because she said, you know what? Yeah. She said, everybody's used to, they hear this narrative. And she's like, I want to present the food. And she did it brilliantly. So when she came to you with that idea, how did you handle that? You know, she was one of those people where she was very, very accomplished. Mm -hmm. But she was at a stage in her life where she was married, living in London. She had some little children, Mm -hmm. and she was casting about for what would be next. And she missed her family's food. So she started cooking it for her kids and her family. And then she she realized that she wanted to write about it. And what she wrote was so exceptional that at that time, I can't remember what year that book came out, but it has to be, what, at least 10? Eight, eight years ago, 10. Okay, yeah. eight, 10 years ago. In those days, people weren't as concerned about, you know, do you have a following and all that sort of thing. She was such a good storyteller about what it was like to eat breakfast at the table with her family and how they made everything and grew figs in the backyard. And it was so beautiful that um, she didn't have any trouble getting an agent or a book deal. Oh, well, it's a great book. And I like her personally a lot. 
She's yeah. just a great person. And she also wrote some supporting articles for different newspapers that really helped raise her profile. Yes. Because they were so well-written, so balanced. I forgot the article that made me want to buy her book, and I did, but it, it was, I think, for The Guardian. Mm-hmm. But what makes a good cookbook to you? Oh, that's hard question. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, we all have our favorite cookbooks, but... What are some of your favorite cookbooks and what do you like about it? What makes a good cookbook? Well, I know that it's a cliche to say Otolenghi, but I loved his cookbooks as soon as they came out and I couldn't wait to cook from them. Mm-hmm. I mean, his recipes are kind of fussy and whenever right. I'm cooking from them, I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to combine these three steps. I'm not doing that. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> but somehow it all comes out, yeah. right? I don't really have to have that ingredient and whatever, but I've been cooking long enough that I can just work around mm-hmm. it. But they're so they're so evocative of a time and a place and everything's beautifully photographed mm-hmm. and the head notes are very thoughtful. So I like story-based books. I like memoir-based cookbooks, which are mm-hmm. having a surge in popularity now. It used to be that either you're going to write a food memoir or you're going to write a cookbook. But there haven't been that many food memoirs that have come out in the last couple of years. But there have been a lot of sort of memoir-based books, like Frankie's book on uh, Taiwanese-American food and um, Eric Kim's book about Mm -hmm. uh, Korean-American food that are very personal about how they grew up and their families and also some really fun mashups of food that combine like American comfort food with their family's food and they create something new. Like mm-hmm. I think there's a corn dog in Frankie's book that has, I don't know. Who's just, Frankie? Frankie is a big food blogger who got a Savor Award for best blog. Do you have a last name? Huh? <laughs> uh, maybe? I, okay. I have to look it up. Okay, we'll look it up and we'll put it it's in the It's a Taiwanese... American cookbook. Because it's a wonderful Taiwanese bakery in Williamsburg. And when it opened, there was a little bit of criticism because one of the owners is not Taiwanese. His wife is. And people were like, "Uh." and then you go there and it's like amazing. Everything's delicious. And he's really nice. The bakers are really like, it's a great, it's called uh, Winsome. Mm. And they have a book that just came out. Well, maybe we'll get to authenticity now because In your newsletter, this is a big topic. Yeah. And are we ready to tackle this? Sure. Okay. The big topic is in food writing, who gets to write what, who owns what, who can, who can't write. And one of the reasons I transitioned personally from having a blog to a newsletter is because I wanted more of a... I didn't want everybody chiming in. I wanted people that were engaged with me to chime in. And I don't care if people agree or disagree with me, but over the years I had gotten comments like, this is not authentic, or who are you to write about this? And you wrote something recently in your newsletter about a recipe that you saw in a newspaper, and you wrote them a letter saying this wasn't quite authentic, and could they revisit that, which they did, but not fully. But let's talk a little bit about authenticity. Let's say I wanted to write a book on Japanese food or Malaysian food, or Somalian food. Like, if I was like, coming to you, say, I, w- I want you to help me, I want to hire you, mm. what would you say? Well, we'd have to <laughs> no. state the obvious <laughs> that uh, you're a white guy who wants to write about this stuff. Mm. But that doesn't automatically mean that it's a no. I mean, maybe you lived in Somalia. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe your partner is Malaysian. Mm-hmm. Maybe you had a Malaysian pop-up where you sold the Malaysian slash American comfort food. Mm-hmm. So you can have qualifications so to write about for, that food. You would look for a writer or somebody who has authority. Yes. And, and who has probably some historical knowledge or cultural knowledge. Of cultural the- knowledge. Maybe you have a you know master's degree in a Japanese uh, printmaking. Okay. Um, <laughs> which, you know, I mean... Uh, That wouldn't be the number one thing, but that would help. Mm -hmm. Maybe you've written about your extensive travels in Japan and how much you love the country and the culture Mm -hmm. as a travel writer. And that gives you authority to write a book about Japanese food. 
I think the most important thing is to be respectful of yeah. other people's food and not to claim it as your own. Because some of the great cookbooks have been written by people like Julia Child, Diana Kennedy, written about a culture and their food, and they've become sort of the Bible. When some people say, well, why should they get to do that at the expense of somebody local? And I remember when I worked at a Southeast Asian restaurant and Chinese restaurant with Bruce Cost in San Francisco, I was the pastry chef, and he said, just because you're from a country doesn't mean you're a good cook. <laughs> and I, I thought about that because people always say, oh, you know, oh, you always want to go to a Chinese restaurant where there's lots of Chinese people, or oh, I want yeah, to go that's... somewhere in Paris where there are no tourists. Right. And I'm like, well, tourists actually often go out to eat and they want to eat well. They're not there to, you know. So let's talk about that just a little, like, who gets to write a book? Who gets a contract, for example? Well, until very recently, publishing was very white, and they hired other white people to write books. And it didn't really matter what the subject was. Mm -hmm. If they wanted, you know, a Mexican book, then they were okay with that. Mm -hmm. However, there's been a reckoning, and now there is a much wider acceptance of the people who are from that culture getting the opportunity to write the book. Mm -hmm. And... I mean, it's still small. I don't, I don't know what percentage it is, but there's a lot more diversity now in cookbook publishing than there mm -hmm. used to be. And that's a really good thing because it, it just widens the opportunity for people who haven't been able to get into the field mm -hmm. and gives them a way in. Well, when I talked to my editor the last, I want to say, five years or so, there was a big, I guess, the, the shakeup. There was a reckoning. There was yeah, a reckoning. There was a shakeup. Yeah. And I talked to my editor and I said, you know, you guys are a very diverse group of people. You publish a lot of diverse books and so forth. And she said, yes, but we could do better. And Good. then they launched a side publishing, I think it's called Four Color Four Press. Four Color Press, absolutely. So, to do, With the black editor-in-chief. Right, who was one of their publisher. star authors too, Brian yes. Terry. It was funny because somebody once published a I don't know him, but he's pretty serious about his subject. He's written vegan books. And somebody on Instagram wrote a thing about prominent gay, lesbian, LGBTQ people of color who are food writers, and they include him. <laughs> and he's oh. married with children. I was like, oh, I, they just outed <laughs> him. But he, <laughs> he sort of wrote back. He said, you know, there are other people to feature. That's not my category. <laughs> that was polite. Yeah. But I am seeing a lot of more focused books come out, like yeah. Erica Kim's book, or um, not just these general books. Because I tell people now, if you want to write a book, do a single subject book or have a focus rather than, these are 100 great recipes. Yes. Like, there's no theme there. And no. you can find recipes online. Now, if you Things wanna, I like to make. Yeah, if you want to make a chocolate <laughs> tart, yeah, you can go online and search that. But people want, like, Melissa Clark's chocolate tart recipe or Deb Perlman's, you know, corn salad with tomatoes and basil. Well, I just work with somebody who is a vegan Mexican blogger, and she wanted to write a vegan Mexican cookbook. And um, she had four offers for her book, but she also had a few editors tell the agent, that the Mexican vegan market was already saturated. <laughs> like, what? Well, it's a pretty... <laughs> there was one yeah. other book, basically. I think it's a pretty... I mean, to me, it's not necessarily saturated, but it's a small market. It's small, yeah. And if someone's already done the book on the subject, maybe there really isn't room... Like, I'm seeing a lot of books right now on a certain subject, and I can't remember what the subject was, but I was thinking... Do we need another book like that? Yeah. We've sort of done that. Well, that was the job of the book proposal that I coached her on was to say, okay, you know, this other book came out and mm -hmm. there's been a lot of excitement about it, but here's how my book is going to be different and why there's room for another book. So let's step backward for a minute. I met you when blogging was the big thing and blogging kind of started around the year 2000. Yeah. And didn't really get moving until around 2004, 2006, 2007. 
people started getting noticed. And then there was more and more. And at first, it was just a lot of people having fun writing about food. And then people kind of jumped in. And nowadays, bloggers, some of them are making a really large amount of money. Yep. They figured out how to use search engines to get people to go. They're writing for search engines. You know, you read yes. these blog posts that look like they're written by AI, as we now say. Yeah. But they're like written by a machine for search engines. You tracked that a lot. You were sort of a really dynamic presence, I should say, during that time. And you wrote a very controversial blog post. And what was that? It was the one you got the most comments on ever. Well, the one I got the most comments on was just because you adapt a recipe doesn't make it yours, I okay. think. Because people didn't know. A lot of people were like, I'm going to just republish this recipe from Ina Garten. People are still doing it. I still come across people who are just cutting and pasting other people's recipes into their blog. Mm -hmm. Because I know that people, you know. And they'll even name the author and. Oh, okay. I mean, like, literally, like, not changing anything. Okay. So, so there's the people who don't change anything, who cut and paste. Then mm -hmm. there are the people who slightly massage a tiny, tiny bit, but you can still tell. Well, that, you know, when that topic came up, I remember, because it never really was a problem before, or an issue, I should say. You know, when newspapers would publish a recipe from your book, they would say adapted from David Leibovitz's yes. book of you know, great vanilla desserts or something. And they would change it and adapt it and it was fine. But then bloggers started doing it and sometimes not giving credit. Yes. Um, I had somebody who was copying recipes directly from my book and putting them on her blog. And I contacted her and she didn't write back to me. And then I sort of had my publisher get involved because, you know, we just want attribution and I'm happy for people to share my recipes, but I'm always like, well... Write it in your own words. It's weird when you see your own words attributed yes. to somebody else because I write in a specific way. And when I see my words, I'm like, wait a minute, that, that's me. And she's talking like me. Yeah, <laughs> that's weird. It was weird. And what it bothered me, I think, the most was she had children. And I was thinking, wow, that's not good parenting. Like, you know, <laughs> I'm not an expert on parenting. But I'm like, lead by example, like, you know, just do the right thing and... So what happened in the end? Um, I ended up, nothing actually changed. I was kind of surprised. It's really hard to go after people. You know, I don't want to be the police of the internet. Yeah. On the other hand, I also remember during that time, if you adapt a recipe, people were like, well, you didn't invent pot roast or you didn't invent creme brulee. I'm like, I didn't, but I wrote the recipe in my own words. I made the yeah. recipe, I created it. I checked to see if I'd rather have cream or milk, and I you know, this is this. So you're welcome to share, not steal. I used to say. <laughs> well, you wrote you wrote a whole blog post on that that people still refer to. I think it was a really good one yeah. about adapting. So fast forward to now. Yes, um, we didn't have social media when we started blogging. No. We didn't have Facebook. We didn't have all these other th these satellite things. And now people are becoming or have become extremely famous as influencers. What are your thoughts on influencers? Because I don't consider myself an influencer, but the influencers, I consider myself kind of an influencer or somebody who is maybe paid or sponsored mm. and is pushing products or maybe, mm. maybe that's wrong. Well, I think there are influencers who do that, but I think you can be an influencer without pushing any products mm -hmm. simply because of the size of your platform and that people will listen to you. And, uh, I mean, I don't think, I don't think you really promote very many products at all on your site because, or on your Instagram or whatever, right? Because people are, because then you get into a whole thing of, well, did he get paid for that? Or is mm. he doing this just because he likes it? And it gets too complicated. Yeah. You know, well, once I was offered a free round trip flight on first class nice. on an airline. Well, it was because <laughs> they had some chef on board and they wanted people to write about it. And we would fly to somewhere in North America and then return the next day. And I said, well, I'd love to come, but I can't write about it because nobody wants to see me sitting in the first class seat drinking champagne when like them, I'm often in economy myself. And it just, it didn't seem like there was a story there. So I didn't get to go. 
Well, I used to, I think I wrote in Will Write for Food when I was talking about travel writing, that the kind of travel writing I hated the most was, I'm sitting on the balcony of this $800 a night room on the Mediterranean, sipping uh, fine wine, and you're not here, but I'm here. Yeah. But on the (laughs) other hand, um, years ago, I saw this couple... They had a bed on a balcony of some hotel overlooking the Eiffel Tower. It was like a four-poster bed outside, so it was obviously placed there. They were drinking champagne. The Eiffel Tower was in the background. And they got a lot of, they have a lot of comments, a lot of followers. And I was thinking, well, this is contrived. It's not a real situation. And yet people didn't care. I remember a period where there was a lot of that, where people Mm -hmm. set up like kind of outrageous they still things. Do. They're still doing that? Well, people, t- I don't go there very often. People say around the Eiffel Tower, people bring these little tables oh. and they do like a setup. They have like La Durée macaroons and they have different outfits. They bring these little changing rooms and they, yeah. Oh, wow. And some of the cat, like the famous well, cafes. Well, people love that because it's it's theatrical, you know, and they yeah. people know that it's kind of fun and contrived and... But I guess I, maybe because I'm not You're not audience. doing that. Well, I don't have the, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not taking my shirt off. You, know, <laughs> you don't want to wear a special outfit. <laughs> well, all these guys have their shirts off, you know, they're swimming in the hotel pool. It's like, you know, I'm not taking my shirt off in public, you know, <laughs> unless I have to. But uh, so I try to figure out why people like to follow and see all that stuff. Why do you think it is? You know, it's aspirational. It's- it's fantasy, it's fun, it's theatrical. I mean, maybe people could take themselves very seriously because they're making a living doing that. But when I look at that photo, I'm not taking it very seriously. I just think it's fun. Well, a lot of them show up in my feed. And I think because they get a lot of... That's one of the problems with social media is we're sort of in these algorithms and they show you what you think you want to see. Right. Um, I remember once I clicked on one of those pictures of like the, a guy, you know, working out. He didn't have a shirt on. I was whatever. And then I started getting bombarded with all these <laughs> pictures in my feed. And it's like, no, I don't want to see that. I want to see like normal people or I want to see my friends. But they'd said, you know, Instagram was funny because they said they did try. There's a button you can press at the top of the screen that says you just want to see the people you follow. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And a journalist, she goes, well, I tried that, but it was really boring. Oh. Yeah. So maybe our, we well, have... Well, I, 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 I know I would watch fewer cat videos if I mm-hmm. did that. But I do, <laughs> I, do, I do follow so many people who are making videos of themselves cooking. And I, I get bored with that after a while, one after another. Well, some of the cooking videos, you know, people are really good at reels. It's like, boom, boom, yeah. boom, adding the flour, adding the sauce, da, da, da. But some people are also really good at it, and I'm a little jealous because yes. I'm not. I don't have that talent. No, yeah. So, <laughs> well, maybe they hire people. They do, but I know a couple people that do it, and they're they're young and they know how to use these apps and so forth, yes. which I haven't mastered, obviously. Right. So, I'm well, better. you're doing very well without mastering those apps. Oh well, thank you. So, <laughs> so one of the reasons, one of the things about Substack <laughs> shifting to newsletters, yeah, because it seems like when I left my blog, I was like, you know what, I want to have an audience that's a little more intimate, that are more engaged with me. And we, you and I talked for a couple of years, maybe, and you were like, I'm not ready to do it. I'm not ready to do it. And then you did it. I liked to have that, like I said, the engaged audience. If someone wanted to say, you know, this is not Korean, that's actually Japanese, it would be somebody nice yes. who is trying to educate not me. Not a troll. Yeah. So what made you leave your blog? You did. Okay. <laughs> Did I? <laughs> yes. So do you think newsletters are the future? Because Facebook, it didn't work for them and it didn't work for Twitter. Well, you know, we talked about this and I thought you said something very insightful about it, that newsletters are kind of like the old days of blogging where we just had a really good time writing in first person, personal things that are of interest to us and you know, when you didn't really have to care about SEO or any of those things, and you could just try to engage with people emotionally about a topic or or intellectually. And newsletters 
are like that now for me, like the old way of blogging. And I do get bored by the recipe blogs that have the long preamble simply because they must for SEO. They have been like, this yes. family friendly will please your friends and family. <laughs> well, you know, I can't wait to talk to, are we going to talk about chat GBT? Because that came up for me. I haven't yes. published that newsletter yet, but that we'll talk whole about that. kind of writing. We'll get to that in a minute because I okay. did test it out and I was like, oh, okay. And you did too. You tested it out actually more, but that seems to be where we're moving maybe. You know, now you see a lot of food blogs are like, this recipe uses, you know, sugar, yes, flour, and they list all these things for Alexa or whatever, which I think is somebody made a snide comment years ago about, and I'm saying this because I like her, um, Ree Drummond, she has a blog and she would show every step of the way. She would show someone, you know, cutting the butter, putting yeah. it into the pan, and somebody made and her a, cookbooks were like that too. They had a lot of process photos. Yeah, and she, well, I don't know if I can tell the story, but the original editor who acquired her books apparently didn't like that idea, and she was like, "Look, this is what my people want," yeah. and she stuck to her guns, yes. and she became who she is. But somebody said, "Well, pioneer woman." Yeah, someone said, um, "Well, I don't need a picture of somebody pouring cream," and I'm like, "But you know what?" Someone who doesn't know how to make the recipe wants to see her pouring cream into the pan. And she was funny, too. She was captioning things. Yeah. Yeah. She did it very well. Yeah, and she does it well. She's, yeah. I think she's and still... And obviously her readers and viewers like that, and she's giving them what works for them. So yeah. what's wrong with that? Yeah, and people need... I mean, even Julia Child held people's hand. Um, she used line drawings and, you know... Everything was very well explained. And Jacques Pepin is like that, too. A lot of these people are teachers. Yes. And so chat GPT, yes. artificial intelligence. Yes. So for people that don't know, can you explain what it is briefly? Because people hear it, artificial intelligence, and it's being applied to a lot of things, but incorrectly in some cases. It's, it's incorrect. It's actually called machine learning. And the idea is that Software can be trained to scrape content from the internet and make it into something new. Mm -hmm. So the way that I tested it is I asked the software to give me a recipe for peanut butter cookies with miso, mm -hmm. and it did. And it looked just like, it looked like a real recipe. Yeah. And it was kind of shocking. But then later I realized it didn't have a head note. It didn't have a yield. Mm -hmm. So in part two, which I'm writing about that hasn't come out yet, I actually made the cookies to see whether they worked, and I asked it to give me a head note, and that's where things went south because... Okay. Uh, so the head note, for people that don't know, is the little block of text before a recipe that you say, oh, these are my mother's favorite cookies, or like if you use miso, use, you know, be sure to use red miso or white miso. So. Yes, exactly. So I noticed that the head note was missing, so I asked ChatGBT to give me... I had note for peanut butter cookies with miso, and it did. And maybe the first two sentences were good, mm -hmm. you know, because they said, you know, if you've never baked with miso, this is what you can expect, and here's what miso is. So that was all fine. Then this is the part where you realize that it's scraping the web and it's picking up stuff that isn't necessarily good because it can't like tell. what? Like... Uh, Make this family-friendly oh, yeah. recipe for your friends and take it to potlucks, and it'll mm. soon become their favorite recipe okay, of all yeah. time. And, you know, <laughs> and so I got mad, and I said, this is too generic. This writing could be about any cookie. Please revise. And it tried to revise, mm -hmm. but it couldn't do it. It just kept adding that kind of generic non-specific writing that... But the recipe that it spit out probably isn't copyrighted because it's a mix of all these recipes. Well, 99% of all recipes are not copyrighted. Right, but, but... Yes, it created the recipe. You could publish that recipe to cut and paste. Well, yes. I mean, I'm sure that that would... recipes like it exist, but theoretically it... I actually tried to paste the beginning of 
the recipe into Google to find right. out, well, where did this recipe come uh -huh. from? Because uh -huh. I asked it, where'd you get this? Mm -hmm. And you get the same answer. You know, I comb the web and it's an algorithm of these, right. it's an amalgamation of these, all these different things. And I, I created it myself, blah, blah, blah. So the first recipe that I got was not even a peanut butter cookie recipe. It was for something else. So it just found cookie recipe, maybe. Yeah. Uh -huh. But I don't know whether it found that exact one or not. Well, the thing I wonder, though, about the recipes, because I do primarily baking, and baking's pretty exact. So a recipe has to work. And if you take 16 or 16,000 chocolate chip cookie recipes and meld them together, I guess it finds some commonality and it says to bake them for 12 minutes at 350, mate. Yes. But anyone who's, you know, been a cookbook author or someone who bakes, there's a big difference between 12 and 14 minutes. There so, is. Yeah. Well, for chocolate, you know, two minutes and your chocolate cookies are hard. Yeah. Whereas, you know, 12 minutes, they might be perfect. You know. Well, I made the cookies because mm -hmm. I wanted to find, I, in the first, the first pass, I didn't make the cookies. I thought, well, this looks like a good recipe. I don't mm -hmm. know. But then I thought, no, I'm going to make these suckers and see if this thing can actually make a good cookie recipe. So everything went fine until the part, I mean, peanut butter cookies, you know, they have a cross hatch with the right. fork that you're supposed mm -hmm. to put on the top. And the dough was like whipping cream. Mm -hmm. It was really soft. Mm -hmm. It tasted delicious, but it was really soft. So first I added some flour to add more body to it. And then I thought, I, I can't even, it said, roll the cookie into a ball, put it on the sheet pan, and then flatten it with your fork and make this mm -hmm. cross hatch pattern, which is standard for a peanut butter cookie. But I couldn't do it was too soft. Okay, I so would, as... I would try to put the fork down on it and would pick up the whole cookie. Well, as a recipe developer, what I would have done was chilled the dough. I would have made the call, say, okay... I tried that. This could be real. Yeah, so you... I made the first batch, mm -hmm. and then the dough was getting softer and softer, so I put it in the fridge, and mm -hmm. I came back later and make, made the rest. Not good. Did not solve the problem. Well, so I guess the moral of the story is you can have it spit out a recipe, but make sure you test it before you exactly. publish it or pass it. Because I did, <laughs> I did the same. I was trying to ask it questions. I was like, where did David Leibovitz go to the bakery today? And it said, well, I'm not allowed to give you information about specific people. Da, da, oh. da. So I asked it a couple of questions like, what are David Leibovitz's favorite bakeries in Paris? Because I, ha sure. I have that information on the yeah. internet. And it didn't, it said, I'm not allowed to give you information. But then I said, I need a cassoulet recipe. And boom. I mean, it took me like weeks to come up with my cassoulet recipe in my book, My Paris Kitchen. And it came out with a recipe that looked good. Oh, okay. But now I want to know. So let's say, okay, um, you want to publish a cassoulet recipe in your newsletter. Mm -hmm. So would you test it and work on it? And then would you say, I got this from chat GBT? Well, as somebody, I learned early on writing cookbooks, you're never wrong to give credit. When in doubt, give credit. And Flo Breaker taught me that, who was a wonderful baker. So I might not give credit to chat GTB. GBT. GBT. But on the other hand, I might, because that's part of the story. If I said, I want to test out this and da-da-da. So Okay. But do you think that other people who are cutting and pasting content that machine learning software gives them are going to credit? The machine? The machine, the software? Well, you're not. Okay. This is probably, I'm not a lawyer, but you're, <laughs> you're not. The machine is just. Actually, it's not creating anything, even though it is, but it's just it's a, uh, culminating. Assemble, assembling. Should, it's assembling something. So I probably, I don't know. I might use it if I was, you know, writing a book and I said, oh, I need a recipe for peanut butter miso cookies. Let's yeah. see what some people do. And that's what often cookbook authors do when you're writing a or recipe developers, you look at a bunch of different sources and you say, oh, so, Alice Medrich added milk chocolate and so-and-so doesn't, you know, uses crunchy peanut butter. And then you might talk about that in the head note. But there's really no there there when you say, 
This is a recipe I found on the internet by talking into the microphone on my computer. <laughs> It's just not a good story. Well, I've tried it for a couple of other things, like um, a guy from South Africa hired me because he was writing a, a weed cookbook because South mm. Africa had just legalized weed. Okay. <laughs> But he, you know, he wasn't a recipe writer, so he didn't really know how to write a recipe. Mm -hmm. So I tried putting his recipe into ChatGBT and said, could you please make this into a proper recipe format? And it pretty much did it. Mm -hmm. So that, that was helpful for him. And then somebody else, uh, someone in Australia is writing a cookbook, and she wanted to tell a story, and it had a title that I didn't like very much. So I put the title into Chat. Mm. GBT and said, can you improve upon this? Can you make it more emotional? Is what mm -hmm. I said, because that's really what you want in a lot of your writing is to be able to elicit an emotion from your readers. And so I asked it to make the title more emotional and it, it did an okay job. Yeah. I guess the bottom line for me on this whole thing is it's not my wheelhouse. Yeah. It's not what I do. I write for a living and I, I write in a specific style. I have a friend who's a ghostwriter, and he's like, I could write your book, and you wouldn't know the difference. I'm like, go ahead, please. Yeah. <laughs> But he's expensive. <laughs> Very expensive to be that good. Yeah. He's a good friend of mine, and we joke around. But I live in France, and when you write like a letter to somebody, not recipes, it's really difficult because there's all this politesse, politeness. You know, there's like 17 different ways to end a letter. You say, you know, I wish you like salutation distingue, like distinguished salutations. And the way you sign it rather than best or truly or sincerely, that's like loaded. There's different ways. Like you say bonjour or merci beaucoup or cordialement, cordially, you know, depending on how well you know the person. It's, it's really complicated. So I do know French people who actually use the chat no. to write letters because they go, oh, my God, it knows how to do this. Okay, because it it's not their field and it can figure out something for them. But, but both of us like to write. Yeah. It's what we do. Yeah. And but, it gives us pleasure. So why would yeah. you want a machine to do it for you? Yeah, so fight against the machine. Well, I, have, <laughs> I have some friends in France and they don't like cell phones and they're against all this stuff. And I said, you know what? I don't want to be the old guy sitting around complaining about the younger generation. So I, you know, even things like TikTok that I'm not on and I don't, it's not my thing. I'm like, you know, I want to be open-minded because when I started blogging, people were like, that's stupid. No. And I, people were like, why are you giving away content? Or, you know, they were like, it's a waste of time. And nobody read my blog for like seven years. So, you know, <laughs> but that was what it was like. And you just, I did it because I loved it. And even writing cookbooks, as you know, you coach people and they're probably like, I want to make money. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, people think, you know. They I, think you know, that, but yeah. Yeah, because I break, sometimes I'll break it down. And I was like, well, let's say you get like $50,000, you know. Your agent's going to get 15%, and then the government's going to get 27%, and then... Photographer. Photographer, and then the food, you know. Stylist. I spend like $10,000 on food when I write a book. Um, wow. Well, you know, you make something, it doesn't come out. And I always tell people, we make the mistakes as the author so that readers don't. And you don't want, like, I don't want somebody wasting a pound of butter at home. I want to waste the pound of butter so the recipe works. But that's just me. I like that. <laughs> and, you know, it, it used to be that you just presented the finished product. Um, but like Cook's Illustrated and America's Test Kitchen, they've made like a whole business out of explaining the whole backstory of, well, I tried this and then I tried that. Yeah. And there's, I don't know, like 500 words about all the things that they did to get to this point. And in a way, it's really good because it establishes their authority and expertise And also when you're a cook, it's kind of interesting to read what they tried and, yeah. well, and that's didn't why try. That whole get to the recipe thing that became popular because so many people didn't want to read all the formatter yeah. before a recipe online. And I would say, well, if someone's talking about how they made the recipe, that means they made it. <laughs> and same with the head note. I always tell people like Alice Medrich, who writes books on chocolate, or Dory Greenspan, they write about how they made the recipe. I found this in a book. Or a chef gave it to me and I tested it and it's like, so you know it works. 
Yeah. And that's a big thing. Right. You wanted to talk about magazines also, didn't you? What are magazines? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just subscribed to a magazine mm -hmm. for the first time in maybe five years, mm -hmm. uh, a food magazine. I don't even know anybody who gets magazines anymore. What happened is that um, advertisers went away. They went online. But when I started... They don't... Yeah. That was what is what used to pay my salary as a magazine editor was the ads. Well, that's true. However, somebody told me years ago that the reason online advertising is so cheap is because it started low because you had a lot of amateurs, myself included, who weren't in the ad business. And we, oh, you want to put an ad on my site? $10, you know, whatever. Yes. So the bar was low. Well, some huge percentage of all advertising online is either on Google or Facebook. Uh, okay. Yeah. But it's cheaper than a newspaper ad or a magazine ad. So it yeah. all went away. And then you only had your subscribers to pay for everything. And so, and then your subscribers were all going online yeah. and getting recipes and reading articles. And so magazines have become something nobody, people don't even think yeah. about them anymore. Well, it costs money. Like somebody was telling me here in America, if you subscribe to a newspaper, it can cost you like $1,000 a year or something. I'm like, my, uh, yeah. my, my Sunday New York Times subscription is $400 a year, as okay. is my San Francisco Chronicle subscription. Okay. But fortunately, since I'm self-employed, I can write them off. <laughs> well, the good thing about <laughs> magazines and newspapers was that you would come across something that you wouldn't normally read. Like you might read The New Yorker and... You, know, you might read about somebody developing a wasabi in Antarctica. Like, and it would be like an eight-page story. And you're like, I never would have clicked yeah. that headline. Right. Um, You'd be on like page five and thinking, now why? Why? How did I yeah. start reading this? Why am I yeah. reading this? And same with, like, I, when I moved to Paris, it's funny because I had a whole stack of recipes that I put in a folder from food magazines I had. And yeah. when I was finishing my blogs, I said, I'm going to make some of these recipes. Finally, it's been 20 years. And I did. And it was kind of fun. And then people started asking me questions about the recipes. Like, can I do this? I was like, okay, this is over. Do you still have your file with your clippings? Yeah, but I got rid of a lot of things. Yeah. Some of them looked like they might be good recipes. But I'm kind of now, you know, I make the same things a lot. I don't try yeah. new recipes as often as I should. And my focus online is less on, because I think there's so many recipes out there. That and I have you know written nine books and a couple hundred recipes on my site and, so, and sure. I like doing recipes, but it's it's hard because people are much more I want to say exigent, which is a French word, which means I guess discerning and they want to change things and they have yes. a lot of questions. And I don't mind people changing things, but I was getting the same questions over. I, I could tell that, and I was starting to write recipes answering the questions, and it wasn't. It was less interesting to me, I should say. Yes, I don't blame you. So what do you think is the, is the future of cookbooks and cooking? Are cookbooks still going to be relevant? Are people going to start just asking chat? Give me a recipe for soft chocolate cakes. Hmm. But you can ask Google to give you a recipe for soft chocolate cakes. But what will that give you? It will give you the top-ranked SEO recipes. Okay, and food, are those good food recipes? Food Network. Okay. Um, what do you get when you do those kind of searches? I get Food Network a lot. Well, because I'm in France, I get these French websites oh. that are all sites that have recipes that they don't... It's not like a person... Like, if there's a person behind a website... Yeah. Like Deb Perlman or Reed Drummond or Elise Bauer or Kenji Lopez, I know they made the recipe. The ones in France are always these big food websites. Oh, corporate... Uh, I guess websites. so. They have yeah. these names, and yeah, I get yeah. I get corporate websites, yeah. uh, and then I get some bloggers that I've never heard of who have figured out how to keep their recipe for chocolate chip cookies in the top of the mm. Google search result. I think, like we, you remember Elise Bauer from Simply yes, Recipes, I do. who started this food blog, and it was just her bake cooking and baking, and you knew she she wrote about. It was very clear, very focused, not complicated, but the recipes worked and you knew yeah. they worked. 
And so I look at a site like hers. She sold the site, but there's still older recipes on there, and that's good. Yeah, this still works. But they are having, you know, it's hard for them to compete with the big corporate sites right. to get high enough to get eyeballs on their site. There's one site that always comes up, and it looks like a really great food site. And if you read the about page, it's all these tech people, and they're talking about how they love to eat. Oh, and they don't—they don't really look like food people to me. And I don't—they don't. What do food people look like? Well, they look kind of happy. <laughs> um, you know, they're not sitting in a gray cubicle being photographed oh. about page. Mm. They're not. It's the food people I know just are not that slick. Even people on Food Network who are these well-known cooks, and you know, it's a big. Yeah, you can tell they actually cook. They have experience. The, sure, the personalities. So I try to avoid that site. Hmm. Okay, yeah, I don't blame you. And people send me links to it all the time, so they're doing very well. But Well, thank you so much for coming. It was great to chat with you. Um, I loved cookbooks, it. Thank you. The future, the past. I do think it's interesting, the transition now to newsletters, and it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few years. Because we love doing our newsletters, and we love doing our blogs, too, when we had them. So what's yes. next? What's next? Wow. That's a good question. More newsletter. I love the newsletter. You know, I'm only doing two newsletters a month and I can think of so many more things I want to say. It's hard mm -hmm. it's hard to wait. Well, that's always been the problem for me writing online. I have too many things to say, but it actually sitting down and taking and writing it up and then making the argument, you know, say I'm going to write about, you know, why I love Haitian food. And you have to make the argument why it's so good and examples. And then, you know, so, and then make sure all the apostrophes are in the right place and you didn't write it's rather than it's and you didn't use the wrong word. Oh, yes. <laughs> that part's not so much fun. <laughs> well, it was always, it's fun to talk to you and I love chatting with you. Me um, too. It's Diane, really you have fun. a book, Will Write for Food, which this is the fourth edition of the yes, book. Yes, it is. And you oh, it is, it says it on the cover, and you've updated it over the years. Anybody interested in food writing should get this book. Thank you. Because it explains how to start a blog, how to sell your cookbook, what to put in your proposal. And you also are a coach, so people can hire you. And your website, where people can go for that, is? DianeJ.com, D-I-A-N-N-E-J.com. Okay. And your Substack newsletter is Diane, double N, E M E N, Jacob.substack.com. Right. And I'm at davidlebovitz.substack.com. If you want to follow both of our newsletters, we would love to have you as readers. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much for coming, and I will chat with you soon. I, I look hope forward so. to our next visit to San Francisco. Okay. Thanks a lot. <laughs>